In today's episode of the Sixers Beat, Rich and I talk about the fact that the Sixers were the top-ranked defense in the month of November, how to reconcile that with the fact that they got lit up by the Cleveland Cavaliers on Wednesday night, whether there are any long-term concerns from that performance against the Cavs. We then talk about how Joel Meade has looked in his return to play and how the Sixers should tailor their offense now that they have their centerpiece back. Enjoy the podcast. All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined by Rich Hoffman on the Sixers Beat, a part of the Athletics Podcast Network. How you doing, Rich? Derek, I'm doing fine. Uh, I got nothing really else to say about that, so let's uh, let's get into it. It's about about how the Sixers are doing. They've had some ups and downs. A blowout win over the Magic since our last podcast, um, and now a a blowout loss here to the Cavs with a good win, neither a blowout in either direction, but a good win against the Atlanta Hawks. I guess rather than talk about any one specifically, at least start off, I'm sure we'll get into specifics. What's sort of been your overall takeaway here in the three games since we last spoke, or at least since we last spoke uh, on a podcast format? Well, Joel Embiid is back. He is. Well, it's kind of noticeable when that happens. <laughs> he does tend to leave his imprint on the game, yeah. He's big, too. You can't really miss him no, either, he's too. That's tough to miss, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I would say that that the is the kind that, of insight you can only get by being in the <laughs> locker room. He is a tall human being. Okay, let's actually get into some. Do you, do you remember now. like the first time we saw him play though, and like he went up against Al Horford and he made Al Horford look like tiny? It was it was like mind blowing. I did not realize. I we all knew he was a huge human being, just did not realize it until he made a six foot nine guy look tiny. Anyway, we are completely off to- topic. The thing that has stood out about Joel. In both of these games, in the very good win against Atlanta and the very bad loss against Cleveland, (laughs) is that he has been super into moving the ball and trying to get his teammates involved. It has been just very noticeable from the beginning of the game. Um, You know, and he said it after the Atlanta game, they're on the road right now, neither of us are on the road, that he was like, I want to keep the ball hopping. I want to keep these guys involved in part because he sat with his butt on the couch like the rest of us and watched these guys cook for a week without him. And, uh, you know, ultimately too, I, I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this because it's, it's to a pretty extreme degree, even if he's getting his shots. Uh, I'm okay with it. I, I support it. I think it would be hypocritical for, me or us to say a couple podcasts ago, man, he scored 59 points, but it's insane how little help he had. And everybody's standing around to, you know, after last night's train wreck game, I can't believe he's trying to get everyone involved to this degree. He's got a dunk on this team without, you know, Jared Allen playing. Uh, That's it. There is definitely a balance. He has to strike because he has not been particularly sharp as a scorer. I would say when he gets an easy ISO chance, he needs to smoke a team that doesn't have Jared Allen, who really, if Jared Allen was playing anyway, that's somebody he kills yep. anyway. He was a good player. Uh, and he needs to be quicker on some of his moves, get his touch back, be assertive, all that good stuff. But you know what else needs to happen? And this, I thought, was very apparent in both of the games. When he goes to the dribble handoff game, the two guys on the side of the floor that he picks to run that dribble handoff on, they need to not be stationary when that happens. Yeah. It's like 
It's almost like they watched him score all those ISO buckets for a few weeks and they forgot to move while he's yeah. playing now that he's back. They're watching him in awe like we are as well, where he's like, guys, come on. I want to get this thing moving. I want, you know, to get the dribble handoffs going. So it's definitely been clunky. It's uh, it's very Sixers that shake Melton and Tobias, at least in the second game. First game, he was very good in that Atlanta game. They've all turned into pumpkins to a degree when Embiid has come back and tried to get on the ball. And they're getting good shots as well. Like, Shake can't make a floater anymore. Melton was a disaster in the... He was a disaster in the Atlanta game. Tobias was a disaster last night. They're not pumpkins. But, I mean, their play has just regressed. And I think part of that is they played five games in seven nights and, or, I think uh, and just ran out of gas. I think a part of that is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, I, I think to, to wrap it up here, I don't mind that it's a little clunky right now. The offense was not that great in either of these games. What I don't want to watch all year is the default offense being Joel shooting Kobe difficulty level fadeaway jumpers. And that, that to be like, I don't know, 40% of the team's offense with everybody standing around. Don't get me wrong. Like he can do that when he needs to. And I'm sure he will in important possessions, but there needs to be more of a culture of ball movement and five guys playing together and I appreciate that he's trying to do that, even if there both needs to be, I don't know, just better um, help from his teammates. Like guys just understanding that he's trying to get them involved and he's trying to play the same way. And also what there needs to be times during the game where he's like, all right, I'm going to post up this guy who's way smaller than me because I'm just better than him. So yeah. that's been my big takeaway. Yeah. I mean, to your point, like he's averaging, what was it? It was, uh, Six and a half assists and two and a half turnovers since coming back. Over his last five appearances, he's averaging seven assists per game. Uh, he is certainly making a way more concerted effort to play that style. He's not being nearly as aggressive, including last night when he had the very obvious size mismatch. Uh, and Mobley's a fantastic defender. He's just too small, uh, too he slender. Uh, he could put him yeah. under the basket whenever he wanted to. Look, if that if that is my biggest complaint with Joel Embiid, I'll I'll take that complaint. Uh, I think they maybe right now in last night's game they might not have had enough talent to make that work. Um, and I think part of this is bad timing because I think I think Melton and Milton were due for a to come back down to earth a little bit. I think that's especially true when you talk about playing like you said five games in seven nights uh, and big minutes in almost all of those games. They are running on tired legs and also they were playing above their heads for quite a while there. Um, those two things were going to eventually run head to head, and that probably has very little, if anything, to do with. Joel Embiid's presence. Like you said, yep. I think they got pretty good shots. A lot of them over the last two games, you were due for a little bit of regression. Um, and we'll talk about that regression in a completely different way when we start talking about the defensive side of the court. <laughs> but I don't want to make too much of it because I do think long-term, especially when Maxi and Harden get back, you don't need Joel Embiid. Well, I, I say that, but I, I watch Utah game too. For the most part, you don't need Joel Embiid taking, you know, every, I hope you don't at least, every contested fadeaway jumper. Um, you need him to be able to do that when, when, when you need a big bucket. But I think, I think Joel growing because I mean, look, teams have to double him. He realizes that when you double, like you are going to get good shots. If you move the ball, I like him moving the ball and I like the way he's approaching it. Yeah. And it's, it's not the best short term thing for them right now, because honestly he could have scored 40 points on that team yeah. through just sheer will. But this is the type of early season poor play or, or bad play that I'm willing to live with because 
I don't know, man. I'm, I, I'm, I really dig that he has the, I would even call this the emotional intelligence of understanding like the vibes are really good with the team right now because the ball is hopping and everybody's involved and combining that with the actual X's and O's basketball intelligence, because Joel Embiid is a really, really smart basketball player and he understands like, I just, I I don't want to play like uh, Kobe's my, I think you would probably say Kobe's his favorite player. I don't want to play like that on a consistent basis. Like that's, that's not going to work in the long run. We need to have other stuff like, like, yes, can I do it on plays or for stretches of key, you know, key moments? Sure. But you know, the way you blow out teams in the regular season, the way that you score against good offense or good defenses in the playoffs is that you make them work. You bend them. <laughs> and and I don't think, you know, we, we kind of meant, I, I mentioned on the last pod, there's two ways you can be hard to guard. You either can have great individual talent or you can have great schemes and, and great ball movement and all of those things. They, they need to get both because when Embiid was scoring, they weren't hard to guard as a team. And, you know, it's I, I certainly think there is a balance, but uh, I think it's cool. Like there was a play after uh, I think they ran a pick and roll for Shake. Shake couldn't make a floater against Atlanta, but he did have some success with Joel in the pick and roll against Atlanta down the stretch of that game. And Shake scored. He he rejected the screen and scored. And Joe was like fired up. Like, you know, I'll, I always hear about when he has bad body language. I thought he had great body language that entire game. And the fact that they weren't playing well, it, they just, they didn't quit. They, they never really panicked. And I thought that was an encouraging performance. Unfortunately, it was followed up by their worst game of the year. But we can, we, I guess we can gloss over that a little bit. But I don't know. I, I, I dig how he's gone about it. Like, I think. That's the right thing for them long term, even if it might cost them a few points here in the short term. Yeah, and it's it's sort of a shame the timing of our podcast again. I feel like the timing of our podcast are going to make this a little bit uh, gloomier of a podcast than maybe it should be, because they've look they played a real good game there. Um, they yep, completely blew out the Magic. Uh, they came back and they had a good game undermanned against the Hawks. They've been playing. You know, we've all rattled off the you know what was it nine out of fourteen or whatever they've won. Um, one game doesn't change that. And that's part of the reason why, like, mm-hmm. you know, the last two losses have been pretty discouraging losses. If you look just at them, you know, the Hornets loss and then certainly the Cavs loss, pretty discouraging, pretty disgusting, quite frankly. But when you take a step back and look at the bigger picture, the bigger picture is trending in the right direction. And are they beating a murderer's road? No, but they're also missing two all-star borderline all-star guards from their lineup. Like they're they're having pretty encouraging performances here right now. So I don't want to kill them too bad, but we do kind of have to move on to the defensive side of the court. How on a scale of DEFCON one, which is like nuclear war and DEFCON five, which is who cares? How concerned were you with what they did defensively against the Cavs? I always screw up the DEFCONs. I yeah. think a lot of people think it's five, right? That's Correct. the. Yeah. They think that's DEFCON five is what it is now, right? When there's. Well, I, of- I don't know for sure. I hope so. I hope there wasn't a oh, news event yeah. that I'm missing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to get into geopolitics here right now, <laughs> but uh hopefully it's DEFCON five. But I, I will say I have screwed that up in my life where I've been like, oh man, this is DEFCON five. And uh really you sound like an idiot because that just means it's nothing. Uh where am I at? Um wait, just off of last night's performance or, or all of this? Well, I think all of it you have to be pretty encouraged because before that they were the top defense in the league for like three or four weeks. Yeah. They were the top defense in November. And I, I thought they were going to 
there was no way that they were up by a couple points. I actually haven't checked. Uh, I, I will during this pod if they lost it because it, it seemed hard for them to be able to lose it in the one last game. But they, I don't know. I think they might have lost it with how bad they played. Um, I, I think there was some shooting regression that hit them super hard. And that's another one. You can regress back up to the mean. It doesn't mean just going backwards. So you, you regress towards the mean in either direction. Just Mm -hmm. to clarify that. I knew that one. I, (laughs) that one I've, I've been good on the whole time. Uh, I think before last night's game, the number was 31.7% opponents shooting on threes. Now look there, there have been instances of teams over the years, whether it's Toronto, Boston, whatever, uh, where they, the teams just overperform what they're yeah. they're shooting. The, the, the running theory shooting. is that you leave the right shooters open uh, and give up threes to people who you're willing to take threes. And I think that's there's probably something to that, but it's not that simple because that stuff doesn't translate over every single year. Right. And also when like you know you have teams that leave shooters wide open, like. All right, congr- congratulations, uh, Milwaukee. You left Grant Williams wide open in Game 7 last year. He torched you. Uh, so I, I kind of don't think being overly reliant on that strategy is a huge deal. But you're right. You're right. That has been kind of the theory, and especially on above-the-break threes, that's been the uh, the the working theory. I Here's my point. I don't think the Sixers fit into that box. Would you Would you agree with that? I agree. Yeah, I would agree. There have certainly okay. been people taking threes that you go, oh, that's a, a three he can make. And he's missed them. Yeah. So, you know, 31.7 to be number one in the league. Now, sometimes teams have just the Jedi three-point defense here. The Knicks had it in that pandemic year. I'll tell you Yeah, that. but e- that. E- even that is usually like 2% maybe under league average. You don't usually see teams 4 or 5% under oh, league yeah. average like the Sixers currently are. Oh, yeah. So teams are going to start to make more shots. And unfortunately the Cavs made everything in <laughs> last night's game. Um, but the Sixers defense was bad besides that too. Like their, their transition defense in particular is weird. It was once Embiid left the game, which was goofy. Usually you would assume it's, you know, he's being slow and there were some possessions where he kind of fell down. There were kind of offensive issues where yeah. he fell down on a drive and then it's, you know, it's the classic Sixers can't stop a, a five on four. It's, it's a nightmare, but most of it was with Reed in the game and Reed was scoring, but they just weren't getting back on defense when he was, uh, he was in there for whatever reason. I don't think it was just Reed's fault by any means. I think it was just the entire team's fault. They did a really poor job with Darius Garland. He lived in the paint. He made sprayed out passes. Uh, I, I would say it's like a three. I think they were playing over their heads a little bit defensively, especially with Joel out. But I think the, the final point on that is they don't need to be the number one defense. I don't think when everybody's back, like to be a really good team, like the top 10 will suffice. I think that'll be okay. So they have some room for some teams to hit some threes and it, you know, for, for that to come back to normal and, and they'll still be okay. They need to play better transition defense. I, again, I wonder like yeah. are they a little, little tired, a little, little tired from, from playing a million minutes and not having really any subs. I don't know. But their defense was really, really crappy in last night's game. Yeah. I, I said this in my article. I think it's always a combination. It, it's a combination of bad offensive possessions, which led to run-out opportunities, turnovers, bad shots, combination of bad transition defense, and a combination of, I mean, bad 
not denying dribble to penetration either. And then just uncharacteristically hot shooting. Like, it's not like Cleveland was living on corner threes. I think they only had five corner threes. They shot 10 for 19 above the break. I don't really care how open you are. Most teams aren't going to go 10 for 19 on those shots. So I think it was a little bit luck. But they also didn't do the little things to earn the benefit of the doubt. Like, they had a bad game defensively that was made worse by a team that was making really tough shots. And there were a bunch of, you know, there were like a a bunch of Donovan Mitchell threes I thought were pretty well contested. Uh, Garland hit that one step back over Paul Reed. Like there was, there was some yeah. tough shots made. <laughs> that was nasty. <laughs> but then they compounded that. You know, they probably would have had a a tough time to win the game anyway. But they compounded that with bad turnovers, a bad transition defense, and at that point, what are you gonna do? I thought what was really surprising because then you, there was sort of like a fourth factor in there. They didn't really stop anyone at the rim either. Like Cleveland shot oh, no. twenty three of twenty eight at the rim, and a lot of that was right at Joel. Like that game started off with three bang bang plays where Cleveland went right at Joe. And one of them was in transition. He tried to take a charge. Uh, I think it was Mobley, just Euro stepped right around him. There was another one where he got beat on help. And rather than recover, he tried to just swipe at the ball. There were a couple where they took right up at him and he didn't impact the game defensively at the rim the way that we're used to seeing. Is that anything to be concerned of? No, probably not. Like Joel's, I still think Joel's going to protect the rim. It just all added up to one really disastrous game defensively. And am I too worried about it? No, I still worry about the transition defense, which for the record has been a lot better here over the last month. It just so, was this game. Yeah. It, it, that game was bad. Now you bring in Harden, who's not exactly known for his transition defense. You try to meld all of this together. That still concerns me a little bit. And quite frankly, this matchup against Cleveland, when you add in, you know, Harden and Maxi, I don't know how they're going to stop them. If this were a playoff series, that's just not really what happened last night. Like it was just what happened last night doesn't concern me too much. It was it was pretty much a one-off. Speaking of three-point shooting, have you seen what Luke Cornett does for the Celtics? No, where are you going? When he can't get a contest, like there will be a guy wide open in the corner. He stands under the rim or just, or just in front of it and jumps seven feet straight up in the air, just as like a visual illusion to, <laughs> to block the shot. It's one of the goofiest things I've ever seen. He does it. It seems like once a game. He did it to Udonis Haslam <laughs> in last night's game when I was watching. Uh, I would like to see B-Ball Paul try that. It's, uh, I don't know. It's a very Which, goofy. Talk about a weird team. The best offense in the league by a mile. Like by history. a mile. That'd be a well, history that, they're setting too. Yeah, like they're playing incredible mediocre defense. Extending yeah. Al Horford. Like just a, a weird team in every direction. Every direction. I mean. A really good team, though. I think the, no, no, the clear are, favorites I, like, to win the NBA and title. And to be honest, like <laughs> I think we both had them as one of the two favorites to win Eastland when the season started. I think they're We just right expected now. it to play out differently than yeah. it has been. By weird, oh, I yeah. don't mean bad. I just mean not what we were expecting. C- completely agree. We thought it was a defensive juggernaut, not an offensive juggernaut. And it's been the opposite. The, uh, the other thing that was funny about that game, because, and thank God the Sixers were over so I could, I could flip over for the end of that game. Uh, they had the Royals were sitting there. The, the prince and princess of Wales, Kate Middleton and okay. Prince William, they were there. I don't know why they're in America. They kept panning. It was NBC Sports Boston was the feed on NBA TV. They kept panning to them after every make. They were politely clapping after every Celtics basket. Everyone. The Celtics scored 130 points last night, dude. That's a lot of polite clapping you have to do. I mean, there, there was a lot of buckets. Anyway, did, did I got do, a major like, kick their out wave? I'm sure they the did. Wave. I'm sure they did, but it was very fancy polite clapping and i think at one point uh 
the camera panned on him, and he said to her, he said, he's very good after like a Tatum bucket. It was, I don't know, just the idea of how polite they are and how, I don't know, how, like, how out of place they seem in a basketball game. I wish that happened in Philly when they said that about Embiid. Oh, ooh, he's very good. Yeah. Uh, okay. That was a good know. show. Yeah, ex- exactly. Exactly. I, uh, that, that was the most joy I got out of basketball last night because the Sixers, <laughs> they, they were, they didn't really provide too much for me. Um, yeah. The other thing I guess on defense that I think we've seen a lot of is that they're playing more zone. A lot of zone. Uh, they, it's a lot. So I, uh, did, did you know, did, can you guess how, how much zone they're playing like on a percentage of their 7%. Possessions? Yeah, it's. I think it's six point seven. The last time it was, it was seven percent going into the uh, Cleveland game. I only so know look, that because I mentioned that after the uh, Atlanta game because they played a good chunk of the everything. Everything after the first quarter, they played a good chunk in the zone. So it was something we kind of had to look up. It's, it's which so according crazy, to Doc, though. they practice a lot. According to Tobias, they don't really practice <laughs> at all. So who knows? But <laughs> wait, wait. There is something I wanted to talk about with Doc. Uh, did you see Doc call it a schedule loss after the game? Yeah, yeah, they had, yeah. I saw Joe. It did DeCamera. not go over well. It did not go over well. Yeah, Joe DeCamera completely ripped him yeah. for about ten minutes on his show today. Uh, which, on the one hand, like he had to call that a schedule loss that specific game. It's a little bit of a stretch, but they they had played. Well, it's five just out funny because they've had a bunch of back to backs. The Atlanta game was on the yeah. second night of a back to back. Uh, the Charlotte game, which their previous that loss was, was on the second. That, that was, was a real a legitimate schedule loss. scheduled loss. Yeah. They actually had a day off there and, and, and that one and not very far of a travel. So I agree that there was something to it because like you said, they played five and seven. Like that just takes a toll on you. Uh, it's it's also not what a lot of people want to hear. No. But again, they just won like nine out of 14. So I'm not too up. I'm not freaking out about it. I'm, I'm willing to give them a pass. But it's funny, like Doc lies to us. He just says shit sometimes. Like you just yeah. said with the zone stuff. Uh, you know, he said Which they practice zone all the time. Was Tobias lying, or if Tobias was just trying to like, I don't, don't want to say be funny, but like I think Tobias wasn't all that happy with their zone, and maybe he was making an excuse for. It. I don't know. Was, I don't know, was, man. Tobias does not strike me as somebody who like Doc just says shit off the cuff. He does not strike me as that guy. He strikes me as a truth teller. I, I think is, is how I would say it. Like e- even when he's trying to lie or he has to say like a white lie, whether it's like an injury or something like that, I feel like he tries to say it in a polite way now, or he's, he's laughing about it, whatever. It, there it doesn't is come a as way easy to, to bridge it. the gap because doc said they practice it almost every day. And doc said, or and Tobias said that they don't practice it very much. They could practice it for like two minutes a day. That would be both every day and not a lot. Could be, could be. I'm just trying to give him an out here. I also think Doc, one of his better... I think Doc just says shit sometimes. Yeah, well, definitely. And I I wouldn't judge too much off of that. And I will say, I don't mind that when they get killed, and NBA teams get killed sometimes, even good ones, uh, I do think Doc has a pretty good, I don't know, ability to brush it off. Like, hey, that happens. You know, I've... I mean, how many games has he won? A thousand? It's really just an award for coaching for forever. He's lost a ton of them, too. You know, yep. so he's kind of been there, done that. Yeah, I guess back to the zone. Have you seen how much zone the Miami Heat are playing? Though? Yeah, like sixteen percent, right? No, 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 no. Second, I'm sorry, second place was sixteen percent. Uh, that yeah, was that's Portland. Portland. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a good. It, I want to say like near thirty. Thirty-two. 
Okay. That's a lot. That's like unprecedented a lot for modern NBA. That's crazy, man. Yeah. I mean, think about it. I feel like I've seen the Sixers play more zone than they, they've had in years. I'm they sure played, they have. Yeah. They played 6% of their possessions. Like, yeah. that's really not that much in the grand scheme of things. No. And it feels like they've played four or five games where they've strictly gone to that zone. And Doc's like, we like it. Uh, you know, it helps our guys not run and they're tired. <laughs> I love that was like my favorite thing ever. He was like, it allows people to stay on the court and still be there for offense. <laughs> <laughs> I, that is where I love because Doc can, he can be full of shit. And then he'll have like these moments of honesty. I thought that was extremely funny the way he described it. He's like, yeah, rather than resting people and getting them off the court, we'll just play a zone and they can still be on offense. It was great. It, it was I true too. It was true. I don't know how much of it was last night's game, but their zone statistically has not been very good. No, They're allowing over a po- no, like now maybe this was you didn't look at it after last night's game where it feels like they just Everything ran a step got worse. Yeah, yeah, they ran a step up ball screen for Mitchell, and it was a three, even though it was kind of contested. It was uh, it was rough. So we're seeing more of that. I don't really like it that much, but whatever. You got to try stuff once in a while. I don't, I don't hate the fact that they're trying it. I, I like that yeah. you're willing to mix it up. But as I think longtime listeners know, zone is for cowards, and I feel that way. Also, I, I just don't think it works in the long run. Again, I watched the Heat in that game where the, the Royals were clapping the entire time. Part of the reason they were clapping on every possession was the Heat were playing zone, and the yeah. Celtics were absolutely shredding it to an insane well, I mean, degree. Part of Doc, he's like, we, we, saw, um, we saw Atlanta play Miami uh, the night before, and Miami went 80% zone. He's like, it's amusing to me, like teams have 40 plays against man and only two against zone. So we thought it would be easy to prepare against. Well, the reason that teams only have two against zone is because it doesn't take a rocket science here to figure out how to get an open shot against the zone. So, yeah, I don't I don't enjoy using it a lot often. But on one night, like Atlanta, playing a back to back, a lot of tired players. Sure. Bust out that zone. Keep playing that Look, garbage. Keep playing that garbage. And I think it worked decently for them it over did. there. Their stretch of being shorthanded and also the that Atlanta game. And then they got burnt by it. So, you know, I think I think it's a good thing to see the positives and the negatives. Like for me, honestly, if you're playing zone Sixers, Thibel has to be in the game. Like there's Mm -hmm. just no reason not to do it if he's not in the game because he's actually really good at that. And uh, yeah. okay. as you all know, by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using the BetMGM lines to make all our picks and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use the bonus code TABASKETBALL, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,000 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code TABASKETBALL. Make your first deposit of at least $10, Place your first bet on any game. Claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 21 plus to wager. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Nevada, New York, and Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Colorado, D.C., Illinois, Indiana, Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-522-4700 in Kansas and Nevada. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 
partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. In Ontario, if you have questions or concerns about your gambling or someone else close to you, please contact Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600 to speak to an advisor free of charge. Sports betting is void in Georgia, Hawaii, and Utah and other states where prohibited. Promotional offers not available in Nevada and New York. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use the bonus code TABASKETBALL and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,000 first bet offer on your first wager. So on the topic of Matisse, uh, P.J. Tucker, offense. He's feeling a little matisse right now. <laughs> he is. And one of the things that, that you and I said, or at least I said, a couple weeks back when he was started this epic, what he scored, 26 points, I think, in the month of November? Which they played a few games in the month of November. He I guess played, what, I think, probably all like 14, 15. He was, he was on the court. Missed like a half here or there, but he was on the court. Uh, one of the things that we said when this whole thing started was, well, at least defenders are still respecting him on the perimeter. He's not Matisse because he's still spacing the floor a little bit. It's not really happening. Now, Cleveland is as aggressive as anyone, or at least anyone the Sixers have played this year, in doubling off of non-shooters. But he, at this point, and I think, what do you make? Two threes? Mid-two. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe if he, he gets out of this rut, Teams will go back to defending him because he can definitely make that shot, that line drive planted shot. Uh, but right now, Cleveland came in. They're like, look, probably because they didn't feel like he would take the threes. We're not going to, we're, we're going to give him that space. Uh, that was very evident pretty much all night long. And when you have two of them on the court, that's real tough. It's real tough. They need PJ. Look, PJ Tucker, we, we said this before. He's been real good defensively. They need him defensively. I, I saw this stat somewhere, so I apologize for not. Crediting correctly, but their defensive rating when Embiid and, and Tucker on the floor is incredible. And I don't think that's 100% by accident. Like, P.J. Tucker no, has played that's not by accident. <laughs> very good defense against a wide range of offensive players. And for him to do that at 37 is quite honestly impressive. But they've been playing four on five for a month now offensively, and they need to, they just, look, he's, he's like a career, what, five point per game score? You're not asking for much. You're one or two threes a night when you're open and a garbage bucket. That's it. That's, and then everyone shuts up and we can go back to appreciating his defense and he can get that cardio in. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's, that's well put on the marathon, man. I mean, the, the degree to which Cleveland did not guard him was pretty wild. I rewatched some of the first half clips. They were legion of boom clapping yeah. after defensive pass interference level with those three second violations. Like I dare you to call it every time. They stuck that guy Diakite, who played for Virginia, and I didn't know it was in the NBA at this point. Yeah. They stuck him directly under the rim and dared Tucker to just take corner threes, which, by the way, I think when we had the MB discussion of last night's game, I think that also probably factors into it a little bit. Like they were shrinking the floor to a pretty insane degree yep. when Tucker was in there. And I mentioned this before. To me, that has to turn into the Grant Williams game seven thing against Milwaukee if they are leaving PJ that wide open the Sixers need PJ to take that shot every time because over his career that's a bad play for the defense like he okay you want to clap and go nuts about your three second violations we're going to throw him the ball every time and he's going to make eight or nine of ten or uh, 23s sorry eight or eight of 23s and that's not good defense for you so you know if you well last night it might have been okay considering how the Cavs are scoring on the other end of the court but in general, like that's that's not going to be a good play. And like you said, 
are we going to see teams start to not guard him anymore? Because that's, that's the whole game, right? That's teams don't really guard Thibault on the perimeter that much. They do. They have guarded PJ for the most part, just because look, he's been a, you know, the corner three King for a long time. And, and, and that's the thing. I think that that's part of it, right? That's, that's one issue. I'm not concerned about him making corner threes though. I, no. I think if the Sixers were to play Cleveland in a playoff series, and they did that in game one, I would have confidence that they would exploit that in game two. He would eventually run him out of it. I and know. he would make five or six corner threes, and then they'd just say, okay, we actually have to start guarding him. To me, what is most discouraging about P.J., because like you said, we're not asking for a lot. We're asking for five or six points. But he is completely lost offensively. Like, he's supposed to be a decent passer. He's supposed to be, if not a good ball handler, like he's not stringing four crossovers and in and outs and behind the backs, those advanced dribble moves like his buddy Harden is doing all the time. But he's supposed to know where to go with the basketball. He's supposed to be able to take one or two dribbles and keep it moving and find the right guy and be able to think through the game. There's none of that going on right now. And frankly, over the last couple of games, he looks completely shook. Like he looks straight up shook dribbling the basketball right now. He had a play the other night against Atlanta where he almost turned it over, putting it on the floor twice, like the loosest, goofiest dribble. It's I, I can't describe it except saying like it's like what like an eleven year old or twelve year old trying to dribble with their opposite hand. It was really bad. Like they, they were not tight, loose. Like DeAnthony Melton, if he was on the other team and guarding that, like he would have stolen the ball four times on yeah. on how loose and away from his body that dribble is. And then he threw a pass to Embiid. It was like a ten foot entry pass. Derek, do you remember the play I'm talking about? He mm-hmm. missed Embiid by ten feet. This was not a hard pass to make, too. So, look, I think there's a middle ground here. Like you said, I think he should, this idea that take him out of the starting lineup, get out of here. They they need him for his defense, and his point totals are not the end of the world, especially because, like you said, all you're asking for is a couple threes a game, maybe an offensive rebound. But he needs to be a confident, competent offensive player, and he's just not looking at the rim. And when he gets those opportunities, it's just not the case right now. So that's that's got to change. I don't know if I have too much more to add to that. He he looks like he is a little bit shook with the way he's struggled offensively. They need to get him back. And I think Harden getting back will be good for him. I think taking those threes and making them and just having seeing the ball go through the basket will be good for him. Uh, but yeah, he's definitely played like he knows that he's struggling and is second-guessing himself a lot. I agree. You're right. That That's the hope that with Harden, when he comes back, He'll get more of those corner threes because Harden is better at creating them. He's awesome at creating them, in fact. And then maybe the rest of the game, the confidence will move up. But yeah, he's he's a worse offensive player independent of Harden than I thought. And frankly, like he was okay last year in Miami when they did yeah. all the ball moving and stuff like that. So this is kind of weird, honestly. I don't yeah. really understand why he's having this crisis of confidence. I, d- I don't think it should be uh, to this degree. That's, you know, but whatever. He's, he also, by the way, in addition to getting the marathon cardio, he, he likes to jump when he shoots those threes, by the way. You know, like like he'll hop like three or four times, like trying to will that ball into the basket. When you, when you have him and then you have Daniel House who takes a step back corner three more yeah. than any player I've ever seen in my life. I mean, you have some some pretty goofy corner three-point shooters that uh, used to play for the Houston Rockets and now play for the Philadelphia 76ers. Look, I guess when you're... That's all you do is stay in the corner and shoot. You got to keep those legs warm. Got to entertain yourself. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, House definitely, he he step backs into some threes that he doesn't have to. It's sort of like like Harden last year when he was like, 
I don't do catch and shoot threes. What do you mean? You need a rhythm dribble. Uh, it almost seems like he he makes shots tougher just to get into a rhythm. I don't know. Uh, all right. Any uh, speaking of Harden, scheduled to come back here. What on Monday is the not scheduled, but that is a report that he's targeting a Monday return. Unless something goes wrong, it's probably going to be Monday. Yeah. Um, so it's a Monday. Little, it's, it's a little weird to me. They have three days off after that. Yeah, I agree. Maybe they want to you know give him some time off. After his first game back, I don't know. Maybe that's what maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's you, or maybe he just wants to play against his old team. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, Who knows? I don't know. And look, that's right on the uh, right on the timeline they gave. You know, they they gave four. Yeah, they didn't officially give it, but behind yeah. the scenes, they were like, yeah, about a month, and yeah. it was almost exactly a month. So I'm pretty sure it was November third. So yeah, yep, right there. And Tyrese is probably what maybe a week behind him, just based on timeline. Not saying that we have gotten any update. To uh, to indicate that, but an initial timeline, uh, initial reported timeline, I think would give him about another week or so. So the Sixers are getting pretty close here to back to full strength. Uh, you've got the Grizzlies here on Friday, and then the Rockets on Monday, and then you might only have two or three more games without a without your whole assortment. So that will be it's still crazy. We're we're freaking you know twenty two games in the season over a quarter of the way through the season, we've seen the, the this full group. Forget the full group. We've seen the core four play together five times. It'd be great to get them back. This Grizzlies one would be a, it's going to be tough, but that would be a big one to get. It because would. their their schedule is pretty easy after this. They could. But for I a team a, that, uh, for a team that struggles at times getting back in transition, this could also be ugly at times. Yeah, I, I'm not going to pick them to win. I'll tell you that <laughs> right now. But it would be a big one if they uh, if they could get it. I guess one other thing I wanted to mention from the week, just because it was awesome, the, the play Embiid made against Trey Young at the end of the Atlanta game. Now, Embiid at the end of that game was a monster on offense and defense, but just the, the cat and mouse baiting Trey Young in a, just a very uncharacteristic yeah. turnover in that point was just, just super smart basketball. And I don't think a lot of... It's like I was saying earlier. I don't think he gets enough credit for how smart he is. I, I, I get that he turns the ball over sometimes, and that's uh, that's annoying. But I just there, there's a lot of things that just come very naturally to him that I wouldn't take for granted. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And it's the kind of play that could have looked pretty bad if he screwed it up. Um, but he didn't. He knew how far he could recover from, and he definitely did go. Because Trey Young after the game was talking about, oh man, it was a you know fingertip away. I think it was a little more than the fingertip. I don't think the pass was quite as there as you thought it was. He got you. Uh, that was a, yeah, it was a good play. And what did Embiid end up with? Like eight points in the final minute plus that seal? He was yeah. dominant down the stretch. Dominant. And they needed every bit of it. All right. I think uh, I think that is a, probably a pretty good place there to cut it off. Thank you, Rich, for jumping on. And we'll talk to you soon. Also, if anybody has any mailbag questions, send them to mailbag at sixersbeat.com. We will do another podcast over the weekend. See you, man.